0: Hi everyone, Um, I'm Barak. Hi, I'm Rahul. Um, And welcome to our knowledge video on heart failure. Um, This can be split into two videos so we can talk about uh, chronic heart failure. And heart failure, as you can imagine, is an incredibly uh, common topic that you need to know about for interviews. Sometimes it comes up as an isolated question, sometimes it will come up um, as the second part to for example, uh, an ischemia, st- uh, an ischemia uh, scenario and talk about heart failure and management of afterwards. Um, I think with heart failure, the important things to be aware of um, are having a good structure for the causes of heart failure, seeing a new patient with un- an unknown etiology of their heart failure, and um, having a good structure for the history and the workup. The second thing is knowing the therapies and that includes the up-to-date medical therapies and a bit about which ones are prognostic, prognostic, and which ones improve symptoms? And you have to now nowadays have a fair knowledge of the devices uh, and device therapies in heart failure and when they should be. When are they? When they're indicated? Um, I think the I think the final thing to say is that it has come up in the past um, where they show you clips, very small clips um, of um, echoes. So I think, uh, for example, like a Dilated cardiomyopathy, and so you don't need to have an extensive knowledge. And please don't spend too long on this, but you should just know how to appreciate the four standard views and what a a bad ventricle and a good ventricle looks like. And I think that's a is a fair thing to ask ask of you guys, and they have asked that in the past. So, um, yeah. Without further ado, I'll let Rahul uh, takes away.
1: Thanks, Barrick. Um, and yeah, so what this video will cover is basically everything you should really need to know about chronic heart failure uh, for the interview. Uh, We'll start off with some definitions and classification to give us a bit of background. So heart failure in itself uh, is a clinical syndrome characterized by signs and symptoms caused by a structural or functional abnormality of the heart, which essentially results in elevated intracardiac pressures or slash and inadequate cardiac output to meet the metabolic demands of the body either at rest or ec- or on exercise um, so that's the basic definition which is important to appreciate because um, it helps you understand basically correctly diagnosing heart failure uh, now there are various subclassifications classifications of how, how you can classify heart failure and also uh, based on their severity the one that we'll use today because these seem to change from time to time Uh, is the ESC classification, which has remained in place for a while. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is essentially importantly signs and symptoms of heart failure with a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 40%. Heart failure with a mildly reduced ejection fraction is again signs and symptoms uh, of heart failure and a left ventricular ejection fraction of 41 to 49%. And the key difference between these two is the evidence base for a lot of the treatments is slightly less in the mildly reduced group. There's just been fewer randomized controlled trials. Um, but principally, the treatments are the same. Um, but we'll talk about that um, later down the line. And then finally, you have heart failure with preger- preserved ejection fraction. So again, signs and symptoms of heart failure with a left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than or equal to 50% and evidence of some sort of structural or functional abnormality consistent with left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. So the key points here, uh, which relate back to the definition of heart failure is, you need to have signs and symptoms of heart failure. um, And there needs to be some sort of structural or functional abnormality. Uh, And if there's no evidence of either of those two, it's not heart failure. Uh, So you may have, let's say, Uh, fluid overload, but no signs of cardiac dysfunction. And that could be something like chronic liver disease, chronic kidney disease, hypothyroidism, protein losing enteropathy. So that's why it's important to appreciate the uh, the, the, the definition of heart failure. And there are further classifications, which we'll just touch on to make you aware of, left-sided v. right-sided heart failure, chronic or established heart failure v. versus acute heart failure, and high-output cardiac failure. Um, Just to put a bit of clinical context into this um, and just to show the importance of heart failure, um, it affects around 1% to 2% of adults, but really the prevalence increases with age. 10% of over 70s are affected. And there are a lot of underlying causes, which we won't go into kind of extensive detail in this video, but consideration of these causes is very relevant when you're demonstrating your diagnostic workup for heart failure, which we'll talk about next Uh, before i go on to do that barrick any other thoughts to add
0: no i just think you did it um covered it all really nicely uh the only thing uh i might say with respect to causes again you don't need to have an exhaustive knowledge of all the different causes of heart failure what's most important is that you have a structure for the different types of causes, um and so you know we go through this a lot on the course, but for example, uh, for cardiology for cardiology issues or cardiology presenting complaints, we think about sometimes breaking up into structural, um, arrhythmic, and ischemic, and that's not an unfair way to do it for heart failure as well. There's so many different ways to classify, but that's one thing you could use. Structural, you could think about alcohol, DCM, uh, valvular issues, um, which almost could be there in separate thing, and arrhythmic, like ARVC, or incessant PT. Uh, and then ischemic which is fairly straightforward so just have a structure uh, that you can hang the the majority of the common causes of heart failure on i think it's fair to say
1: yeah i think that's that's a really nice one and it's an easy one to remember and you can cover enough information to show that you know what you're talking about in an interview um great so we'll move on to the investigations and diagnostic workup for chronic heart failure so we start off with a history, um, and I'm sure you'll be aware of a lot of this, so we won't go into excessive detail, but symptoms of heart failure can include breathlessness, paroxysmal, nocturnal dyspnea, orthopnea, and with that a nocturnal wheeze or cough, uh, bloating, this is all related to fluid overload, bendopnea, which is breathlessness on leaning forward, uh, exertional chest pain, palpitations, syncope, cachexia is a, is a common one, fatigue and ankle swelling. And these are important questions to ask when you're uh, trying to diagnose someone with heart failure. And it's also important to screen for other risk factors to ascertain potential causes. So history of diabetes, cholesterol, smoking, hypertension, family history of heart disease. It's also important to do a thorough systems review, trying to screen for multi-system diseases that may be contributing or causing. and your drug history and social history are also very important so asking about things like have they had chemotherapy treatments do they have excessive alcohol do they take recreational drugs all potential things that could be contributing to the diagnosis following on from the history we move on to examination um, now observations such as blood pressure are very important do they have uh, are they, do they have significant hypertension causing heart failure are they tachycardic? Their heart rate. Do they have a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy? Or, or paradoxically, are they bradycardic? Um, do they have signs of heart failure? So signs of right-sided heart failure, such as pedal edema or sacral edema, a raised JVP, pulsatile hepatomegaly. Do they have signs of left-sided heart failure with your bilateral inspiratory crackles on auscultation of the lungs? Do they have evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy with a heaving apex beat or left ventricular dilatation with a displaced apex? Are there any valvular pathologies with on ascultation, picking up any murmurs? Is there a gallop rhythm suggestive of heart failure? They are the things that you would consider important in a in a in a heart failure examination work. Moving on from that, just some basic tests, routine tests that we do in everyone. So you'd start off with some bedside tests. So a 12 lead ECG uh, looking for evidence of any arrhythmias and also any structural abnormalities. And And the important thing to consider is if the ECG is completely normal, this makes a diagnosis of heart failure a lot less likely. So it's a good screening test. And sticking on that, Theme of bedside blood tests. Uh, sorry, bedside tests. A urine dipstick would also be relevant in the right clinical context. For example, investigating for infective endocarditis. If there's proteinuria, that in itself is a, a poor prognostic marker, uh, and also may uh, be suggestive of other diseases such as a nephrotic syndrome. Um, uh, you then perform some blood tests. So, for example, if you perform a full blood count, you may be looking for an anemia. Uh, or rarer things like an a xenophilia which may be suggestive of a, a chronic uh, disease um, uh, of multi-system disease uh, kidney function so that would be important as a baseline and also your electrolyte markers are prognostic markers in, in heart failure if you're hyponatremic for example um, you'd want to test their liver function so do they have a cholestasis compatible with hepatic congestion uh, you'd want to test iron studies uh, again this is uh, being iron deficient is a is a important thing to optimize in patients with heart failure um, and again thinking about underlying causes you test their thyroid function an autoimmune screen if if suggestive uh, you'd want to investigate for their vascular risk factors the hba1c their cholesterol and if indicated uh, you may want to do a urinary catecholamines or a plasma metanephrines for if the history is suggestive of something like a few and lastly, but not least, uh, uh, a BNP, which, um, as you may know, is very sensitive, however, not specific and can be raised due to uh, various different causes. Um, one thing I thought would be nice to cover today is times where BNP isn't so sensitive, i.e. when it's not raised in the context of heart failure. And this can be uh, in cases of acute heart failure uh, and acute flash pulmonary edema where there's essentially not been time for ventricular stretch and release of the natriuretic peptides. Also, in very advanced end-stage heart failure uh, cases, uh, you can have an abnormally normal BMP. And also in obesity, um, you can also find a normalization of the BMP. And the last kind of uh, key, well, last two key, key tests you do on all heart failure patients, transthoracic echo, So that's to assess the cardiac function. So that's diagnostic and it also provides prognostic information. So how severe the heart failure is and also helps screen for potential underlying causes. So do they have regional warm motion abnormalities suggestive of an ischemic process? Do they have valvular pathologies? Is there an evidence of a a cardiomyopathy and so on? And The last thing I think, which is a good thing to do in all uh, heart failure patients, a chest X-ray. So is there evidence of uh, chronic changes, cardiomegaly, or is there evidence of decompensated heart failure? And that would be your routine baseline tests. We'll now go on to talk about a few further specific tests where clinically relevant, but I'll pause there. Any Anything anything to add, Balrit, to, to that battery of tests?
0: Uh, no, that was incredibly extensive. Um, and yeah, as we all saying, like, you obviously won't be able to go through all of those in your... Uh, in your answer but just picking out a few of them to show that you have that kind of depth to your knowledge not just saying i'll do some blood some screening blood so you need to say a, f- a few that you're looking for i really liked um some of the ones you include there especially iron studies i think a few nice points to draw out iron studies and you can say uh because iron overload can be a cause of heart failure but um iron deficient iron deficiency is something we uh should treat in heart failure because that's prognostic uh, and symptomatic benefits. Um, the other thing I might pull up in my history, which I think gives you like a level f- a five out of five answer is just getting an understanding for what their weight is now, if they, if, if they're conscious enough to weigh themselves and what their weight is now compared to what it is normally before they, before they started getting these symptoms. And that just gives you a, a, as the uh, physician, an idea of how many liters they need to be diuresed already in your head and it conveys to the examiner that you know exactly what you're talking about with, with respect to heart failure because it's the number one thing that we look at which is their uh, their daily weights or how their weight fluctuates um yeah i think that's the oh and i, I actually really liked your point about the uh, the causes of a normal bmp in the setting of heart failure uh, so falsely normal bmp uh, yeah that's really good uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, and actually, that your point about daily weights and, you know, that five out of five, actually, I think that that's triggered in me, I thought, also assessing how it you know it affects their functionality and their life and, and demonstrating yeah, no. that holistic mindset uh, as a physician, uh, again, would be
0: a good discriminating point. Even framing it, like, if you can frame it into your history, like, I'd like to understand that NYHA class. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and on to the next yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. no more need like you said yeah
1: so so that information is uh, as Barrett mentioned that uh, what we described there was a lot and you, it would be difficult to fit that into to an answer we'll show you worked examples but uh, the point being that you're just demonstrating what you need to cover uh, and putting that message across succinctly which will come with practice
0: and, and to, to be fair it, it has to be said that in that in the interviews uh They may give you a particular case. They might give you hypertension, and they may lead you down uh, a slightly esoteric cause of hypertension, which has previously happened. And same for heart failure. They so you may you do need to know the causes. Like you do need to iron iron overload can cause hemochromatosis and cardiac failure because of that. Because they may lead you down that path. Um, So you can't just you do need to have this depth depth of knowledge. So go and do the reading. Exactly
1: um okay so they're your routine tests for a workup you know if you see a heart failure patient you need to know the underlying diagnosis and that provides that but there are a few specialist tests that you may need to do where clinically relevant so we'll go through those now the first one is cardiac monitoring and that provides both diagnostic and prognostic information so diagnostically if you're concerned let's say about a tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy this would be a good way to capture that if not present at rest. Um, it also provides prognostic inv- information. So let's say there are runs of tachy or brady arrhythmias associated with heart failure. That's a poor prognostic marker. So let's say in, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, runs of non-sustained SVT is a very important prognostic marker. Uh, another uh, potential investigation uh, process would be coronary artery assessment. If there's a suspicion that ischemic heart disease is an underlying cause. Um, and further information about the types of assessments uh, that we, you can use, we've discussed in the ischemia knowledge video. Uh, but options include things such as a CT coronary angiogram, functional imaging testing, and all the way to an invasive coronary angiogram. Uh, imaging, Further imaging related to that, uh, that can provide a lot of information diagnostically and prognostically is also cardiac MRI with late gadolinium enhancement and T1 and T2 mapping. And this can be diagnostic or suggestive of certain underlying causes, such as a myocarditis, a dilated cardiomyopathy, an infiltrative disease. Uh, But also it can provide very important prognostic information. So, for example, the presence or absence of myocardial scarring. Um, And and the myocardial biopsy is another potential specialist test. And this is a procedure that has risks and it's only really indicated if the thought is that the diagnosis will affect the management. So for example, in the scenario of a rapidly progressive heart failure, despite standard medical therapy, this may be considered by an MDT. And finally, genetic testing may be indicated if there's a suspicion about inherited cardiomyopathies. So that's a bit about uh, some kind of more specialist tests. Uh, Anything you want to
0: expand on there, Barrett, before we move on? No, I suppose one thing I'd say is that the two things, the two specialist tests there that you mentioned that invariably get done for all heart failure patients are A, coronary assessment, and B, cardiac MRI. Um, And the cardiac MRI is actually more and more an absolute staple of uh, looking at heart failure. And You don't know too much about cardiac MRI at uh, the level of the, the stage of the interview, but I think it's useful to know that the phrase cardiac MRI with late, late GAD enhancement. Um, essentially, the late GAD just highlights area, um, areas of scar, um, which is important because different scar patterns uh, mean different pathologies. Uh, I definitely won't go into the different types of scar patterns there, but uh, that's, I think, just relevant to know. And I think you can get across that level of knowledge in interview. That's really quite impressive for a for an ST3 who wants to be st ST. Uh, cardiology st4 um and you're right the biopsies uh are very very rare um and yeah cardiac monitoring most patients probably will get a 24-hour halter um and genetic testing yeah again depends on the situation
1: yeah i think this thanks Barry i think it nicely highlights the fact that there's a lot to learn for this interview and um one needs to just appreciate how much you need to know for interest it's always good to to read, read about more things but 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 don't concern yourself with too much subspecialist stuff for this, at least um, yeah. would be the point. Uh, OK, so now we'll talk about treatments in heart failure um, and there are key core principles which you will look to get in in, in terms of buzzwords, holistic management, making sure it's patient centered and MDT delivered. Um, and that's something you can kind of just fit in as you answer answer the question. Um, And as with all uh, things, it can be split into conservative medical and surgical slash interventional aspects of treatment. So we'll start with the conservative aspects um, and arguably the most important thing being patient education. So there are fantastic resources which you can point patients to. So for example, heartfailurematters.org is a fantastic website, even for your own interests to read um, and provides a lot of information for patients. uh, to engage them essentially in their condition um, and it can, includes things like diet advice so avoiding excess salt, uh, alcohol abstinence especially or, or reduction especially in the presence of let's say alcohol-induced cardiomyopathies, smoking cessation, advice on fluid balance so on the one end avoiding large volumes of intake and if you especially if you have severe heart failure potentially advising fluid restriction Uh, To the other end of, of, especially if patients are on diuretics, making sure that people don't become dehydrated, especially, let's say, in hot days, if they have an episode of vomiting or diarrhea, and actually educating patients to monitor their own fluid balance. So allowing them to make being aware of doing their own weights and allowing early escalation of care if needed. And that links to management being delivered by a multidisciplinary team, so psychologists, occupational therapists, encouraging patient people to adapt to their physical limitations, heart failure specialist nurses, and there it's which is a fantastic resource, which allows better access of healthcare to heart failure patients, to ultimately ensure actions are taken early to prevent significant decompensations, um, and also. What's important is physical activity. So referring patients, if appropriate, to exercise programs to improve their conditioning, which has been shown to improve quality of life and reduce hospital admissions. And lastly, which kind of uh, go moves on to more medical management, but managing important comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, optimizing them. Yeah. Um, so that's your conservative aspect of management of um, heart failure. I'll next go on to talk about the medical management. And um, there are five key drugs uh, that uh, that have very good evidence in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but also are used in heart failure with moderately reduced ejection fraction. Although just as a caveat, there are no or less specific randomized control trials in this latter subgroup. Um, And these five drugs are which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit of detail. ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, sodium glucose co transporter two receptor blockers, and angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibitors. And these all have been shown to have the benefits of reducing risk of death, hospitalizations, and increasing quality of life. So what we'll do is we'll just touch about a couple of points about uh, each drug. So ACE inhibitors, I think the first important thing to say is it's important to always try and dose up titrate these drugs to get those prognostic benefits, because these prognostic benefits have typically been only shown at the higher doses. Um, Now, a couple of key contraindications to be aware of that may kind of turn up in your in your interview uh, scenarios are, Let's say if someone is pregnant, they have a history of bilateral renal artery stenosis or a history of angioedema, or if they have a particularly high potassium over 5, there's caution over 5.5 would be a contraindication. Um, Side effects to be aware of, things like coughing and hypotension. Um, There are just a couple of points to be aware of about ACE inhibitors. Beta blockers, uh, so they're initiated typically in clinically stable and uvolemic patients. And um, again, it's important to stress that one needs to up titrate the doses of these drugs. So let's say the target dose of bisoprolol is 10 milligrams over 24 hours, not the 1.25 that might be started whilst an inpatient. And the key contraindications to be aware of, severe asthma, peripheral vascular disease with, a, with critical limb ischemia, very low blood pressure, second degree uh, heart block um, or more, uh, and side effects to be aware of include things like fatigue and impotence. So, that's very relevant, let's say, if you're thinking about starting it in a young male. Um, uh, next, we'll talk about mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. So, these have been shown to have prognostic benefit in addition to ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. So, this is spironolactone and a plerinone for all intensive purposes. The key side effects are potassium sparing diuretics, so, they will raise your potassium lower your sodium and spironolactone can cause gynecomastia. So often empirically in males, we start them on a plerinone to avoid that risk. Next, we'll talk about sodium glucose co-transporter two receptor blockers. So they've been recommended in addition to ACE inhibitors, beta blockers and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, Important contraindications to be aware of Pregnancy or breastfeeding, an eGFR of less than twenty, hypotension, and don't use them in type one diabetics because they can cause a non-ketotic diabetic ketoacidosis. But non-ketotic, um, the side effects to be aware of. So if you're ever counselling a patient when you're starting them, a potential increased risk of urinary tract infections, and they also actually in, they are a diuretic, so care must be taken to not overdiurese patients um, when starting them. And the final of the five angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors Entresto or sacrubital valsata And these can be considered directly in severe heart failure for those that have not used an ACE inhibitor, but typically their main indication is in people with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction to replace an ACE inhibitor if they've had a month of an ACE inhibitor and maximum medical therapy their ejection fraction is less than 35% and they're still symptomatic. Now, one thing to be aware of: if they're on an ACE inhibitor, they need a washout from the ACE inhibitor of 36 hours before you start in the ARNI. Um, and the contraindications are that of essentially an ACE inhibitor. One slight difference, they're contraindicated at an EGFR of less than 30, while an ACE inhibitor contraindicated less than 25. So that's a slight difference um, with the ace inhibitor. So they are the five pillars of heart failure treatments, chronic heart failure treatment. Barak, um, anything? And just a, a few kind of tidbits uh, about
0: each. Anything to add? No, I love that you described them as pillars because that's what they are. These are the medications that you cannot fail to mention uh, in management of um, chronic heart failure. Um, and yeah, I mean, there really isn't uh, much more to add to. I suppose the ace limiters obviously goes out saying ace limiters if they're not tolerated well in terms of cough you can switch to an ARB um which we'll talk about soon <laughs> oh fun yeah yeah um but yeah no I think it's really good I mean just be just to be aware of the sglt 2 inhibitors. I think um I noticed that uh, this year a lot of candidates still weren't really aware of them um probably, I'm sure people are more will be aware of them next year so I think they're really things that you do need to know about um, and mention when you're talking about management of heart failure, um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic,
1: okay. So there are a few other drugs in heart failure, um, just to be aware of, but they are not the, let's say five key pillars. So diuretics, um, such as furosemide, bimetanide, and the effects on mortality have not really been that well studied, but they have been shown to reduce hospitalizations and increase quality of life. But to note, uh, an, ANG, uh, an ARNI, an ACE inhibitor, and a miller receptor antagonist, and an SGL2 inhibitor, they're all also, they also possess diuretic qualities. So one needs to be aware of co-prescribing um, both uh, and um, making sure you don't over Angiotensin semptin, two receptor blockers, as Barrick mentioned, if you can't tolerate an ACE or an ARNI, that's your second line treatment. Evabradine, uh, a funny type sodium blocker, has been shown to have some prognostic benefits. So they act on the sinoatrial node, so you need to be in sinus rhythm, have a heart rate of greater than 70, have a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 35%, and be on maximum medical therapy, including a beta blocker. And practically, evabradine is used in heart failure, often when a beta blocker can't be used. Um, and then finally, hydralazine and isorbite dinitrites so the evidence for this comes from a, a relatively small trial in afro-caribbean male patients um, and this trial uh, was when this medication was added to an ACE inhibitor a beta blocker and a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist and it was found to reduce mortality and hospitalizations in patients specifically with an ejection fraction of 35 percent and new york heart association symptoms of three or more so, that's actually where the evidence is uh, for hydralazine and isorbite dinitrite. Um, something just to be aware of, essentially. Uh, we're next going to talk about device therapies uh, before we do um, anything more to say before, before we go on to that topic. Uh,
0: no, so I think just the only thing to say is when you're obviously for the first batch of med- uh, medications, uh, especially ones that can affect potassium, so that's your asymptotes and your MRAs, just Whenever you're, I think, getting to the habit. Of whenever you're talking about initiating them, say that you'll be monitoring using these afterwards uh, because that's an absolute must. And same for diuretics um, as well. When you first start, I think once the patients established on them, it's you can taper down a bit. But once you, when you're first starting, you just need to keep an eye on the potassium Um other things. You're exactly right. So traditionally, we say that um, the first batch of medications talked about uh, so that's ACE inhibitor, asin- beta blockers, MRAs. Um, have prognostic um so they have a benefit mortality benefit as well as a uh symptom benefit whereas diuretics traditionally only thought to have a symptom benefit but no current no proven mortality benefit and then the other medications evapridine hydralazine i by not, not 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 as commonly used uh in in heart failure so only really get onto those medications and talk about them if you're Absolutely certain of why you're using them, um, and there's one thing with, Oh yeah, the one other thing I wanted to talk about, um, well, I was just going to mention metolazone. Um, so you know, freeze is a very uh, freeze mind is of. I know the other ones have diuretic qualities, but freeze is the most powerful diuretic of the ones you mentioned, uh, more so than ACE inhibitors and MRAs. So things like spironolactone actually their diuretic effect. Is more seen at doses like 100 or 200 be mm. prescribed for liver disease patients. Um, but if patients are not responding well to uh, diuresis on frusemide, you can a try switching to bumetanide, which uh, some patients respond bet- better to because it's uh, got better absorption um, when patients have gut edema with their heart failure. That's what we the- would think. Um, and then secondly a very powerful diuretic that's normally prescribed on a once every other day dosing um, is metolazone. So it's a thiazide-like diuretic. Uh, so it's a good one to, I think a really impressive candidate would be able to talk about using furosemide to diurese someone, but if they, if that weren't responding well to that, we can consider metolazone that really largely is an, I've largely seen it used as an in inpatient. Sometimes it's used as an outpatient, but you have to then be saying, you know, Caveat it, very close monitoring but uh so yeah I think the five out five answer in terms of medications for diuresis is mentioning um and the need to monitor it
1: yeah fantastic okay um thanks so we'll next talk about device therapies so this is your implantable cardioverter defibrillator or your cardiac resynchronization therapy and we'll go through each So your ICD, that can be indicated in primary or secondary prevention to reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death. And an awareness of the indications is something you should know. So indications for primary prevention. So this is in the case of when people have an ejection fraction of less than 35% despite optimal medical therapy for three months. And they are symptomatic with a New York Heart Association class of two to three And just as a caveat, the evidence is better for people with heart failure secondary to to ischemic heart disease uh, compared to the non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And the key contraindications to be aware of, it's not indicated if they've had an acute MI within the last 40 days, where paradoxically actually worse outcomes are seen and not if you have a New York Heart Association class of four unless there's a plan for, further optimization such as a CRT or, a, or more advanced heart failure management such as a left ventricular assist device or a cardiac transplant um, with the, the thought process essentially that someone with that kind of symptomatology doesn't have a long life expectancy and the whole point of the ICD is to essentially prevent inappropriate malignant arrhythmias um, before end of life. Um, now the secondary... We,
0: we, we, know we, we know it's actually a, a year, it's a good... A good yeah. good rule of thumb uh, a fair one to quote an interview so you need to have a life expectancy of more than a year at least at least a year exactly
1: yeah um so secondary prevention um indications include things such as a hemodynamically unstable ventricular arrhythmia 48 hours after an acute mi with no clear reversible cause found and as barrick says a good functional status with a life expectancy of over a year um Now, important points that patients need to be counselled on or we need to think about when an ICD is fitted are the possibility of inappropriate shocks and and the potential pain and discomfort that can cause. The fact that patients will need to go through a generator change or a battery change every five years, typically. The fact that it can affect driving, so if they have a a shock, uh, inappropriate or, or appropriate, six months off um and that the icd will actually be looked to be turned off one day with its principal indication to prevent premature death but when a natural death occurs it should be turned off to prevent inappropriate shocks essentially they're the, the points you need to be thinking about with icd therapy um before we, we move on oh, any, anything
0: uh, anything to add no i thought it was really good so i think just to summarize that because i know devices get everyone really really um uh Confused sometimes. So, ICD. If you've got EF of less than thirty-five percent and a life expectancy of more than a year, you qualify for an ICD. The other situation is if you have an EF of less than forty percent uh, post myocardial infarction. So, it's not straight away post, as Rahul mentioned. You have to have had at least had um, you know six to eight weeks of optimal medical therapy. So that's all the meds we talked about previously. Um, and that gives the heart a chance to remodel and recover because you often see an impaired EF straight after a heart attack, which will recover over the next six to eight weeks with good therapy. So if they've been tried on good therapy for six to eight weeks and the EF is still less than 40%, they get an ICD. Otherwise for normal heart failure patients has less than 35% and a life expectancy of more than a year. And the final point we're all about the ICD needing needing to be turned off I remember when I was an SHO, SHO, I was always really impressed one of the, there's one consultant in particular uh, uh, who always counseled patients when he was talking about ICDs by the fact that he needed to be turned off and it's always really impressive and it's none the less impressive when people do it in interviews. So a real five out of five candidate whenever they're talking about ICD therapy uh, for heart failure will we we'll also talk about the need to discuss with the patient that it will not be on permanently and forever because it really helps manage expectations at the end of the line. Uh, So that's a really nice point to try and bring into your answer, if you can. Thanks.
1: Okay. Uh, The next uh, device we'll talk about is cardiac resynchronization therapy. Um, And the benefits in the correct cohort uh, have been found that it reduces morbidity, mortality and increases quality of life. And the indications, the key indications we'll talk about first, are if you have an ejection fraction of less than 35% and are symptomatic despite optimal medical therapy. You're ideally in sinus rhythm where the evidence is better, but it can be given an AF. And you have a left bundle branch block with a QRS width of, of greater than 130 milliseconds, although the evidence is better if it's uh, broader, so greater than 150. All right, bundle branch block with a QRS length of greater than 150 milliseconds they are the key core uh, indications for CRT there are also certain scenarios where it could be considered so for example if you have heart failure uh, an ejection fraction of of less than 35 percent despite worsening symptoms on optimal medical therapy and you have a pacemaker with a significant proportion of RV pacing then an upgrade to a CRT can be considered. Uh, Again, this would be an MDT consultant-led decision. Um, They are your key indications to to be aware of for a CRT. And factors that one would consider uh, when predicting the benefit of the CRT are, well, firstly, the ability of the myocardium to reverse remodel. So, for example, if you have a ischemic cardiomyopathy with significant scarring of the myocardium, this would be less likely to improve. Uh, the QRS QRS width is also important. So, the longer the width, the more potential benefit. And some trials have also actually shown harm if the QRS is less than 130 milliseconds, and that's where these numbers come from. Um, and also the QRS morphology. So, a left bundle branch block pattern has best evidence a better evidence than a right bundle branch pattern. So that's a bit about CRT and, and the, the basics of what you need to know. Uh, anything before we move on to add Baric? um
0: No, I think uh CRT is definitely something you should be thinking about for all heart uh, for half-head patients. So it should always cross your mind am I going to think about CRT here and if not why not? Um, and going through the indications really nicely essentially just people are aware what CRT does it's uh, a more efficient form of pacing so you go from a very wide QRS as your normal uh, QRS morphology to a narrow QRS um, and you bring both ventricles in line to be pumping at the same time as each other or you're stimulating at the same time as each other so in that way you get more effective contraction that's the hypothesis uh, so you end up with a narrower QRS than their normal QRS, um, and yeah, I think that's a really nice point about the factors that predict benefit for CRT. And just, it's a nice thing to know. And if you can bring it up, um, you know, with a CRT, unlike pacemakers, you're aiming to pace all of the time. So with pacemakers, you're trying to reduce as much as possible how much you're pacing, um, or how much, yeah, how much pacing you're doing because it's non-physiological. Whereas a CRT. Actually, you see greatest benefit when you have a pacing percentage, a ventricular pacing percentage of over 99%. As soon as it starts getting to 95% or less, um, then you start to see non-response. So that's when you're asked to see a, a heart failure patient uh, and they've got CRT, and if you can start saying things, I would check their biv pacing percentage, their biventricular pacing percentage. Um, it really does imply a good level of knowledge. Um, so are Maybe one to two buzzwords you want
1: to bring in and talk about CRT. Yeah, um, re- really good point to make. Um, okay, uh, we we're going to end this uh, chronic heart failure talk with uh, a little bit about advanced heart failure treatments, and this is more for interest. And you you really just have to have a very limited awareness of this for an SD four interview. Uh, so we won't. That will be reflected by the fact we won't go into great depth. But there are certain options. Um, so. Uh, Options would include inotropic therapy. So this would be a a consultant-led decision and examples include things like dopamine or dobutamine. Uh, There are always risks to these procedures. The two main things to be aware of are inducing ischemia or cardiac arrhythmias and actually they're often used in a palliative setting really to improve quality of life. So that's your inotropes. Renal replacement therapy is another potential option. This is a second line therapy of there's a failure to respond to diuretics. Uh, There's also the option of mechanical circulatory support. So this can be used in the short term if there's critical end organ hypoperfusion states acting as a bridge to more permanent interventions. And then you also have longer term treatments such as a left ventricular assist device or an impeller device. Uh, And these can be used as a long term thing or actually again as a bridge to something like a heart transplant which is another advanced heart failure treatment and of course something we shouldn't also forget is palliative care as well um yeah, if if uh, think if things don't work out essentially but also actually arguably early involvement of the palliative care team in patients with advanced heart failure is equally as important
0: yeah um no really nice i i think yeah your point is completely valid. Like we shouldn't be you start to talk about heart transplant you've gone very far through your heart failure station Um, but I think one thing is a useful kind of catch-all phrase is uh, to perhaps discuss if you're thinking about that kind of thing maybe say something along the lines of I would discuss my consultant about um, advanced heart failure treatment options such as um, which you know such as involvement of a heart transplant centre and see if there's anything else we should or could be considering and that's more than i I think it's important for centers to be aware and trainees to be aware of when patients have reached the end of the road at their center and there may be something else that some of the transplant centers can offer but it's only if these patients fulfill a number of different criteria because you imagine the supply of hearts is very limited so they are very particular about which patients respond i think one particular case and the only reason i mentioned just because of covid Young myocarditic patients um, can often be very, very unwell, and can often uh, have very impaired LVs, a single-digit LV uh, ejection fraction, and those patients can sometimes be uh, it can sometimes be useful to think of early referral to a heart transplant centre um, because they can better manage them with LV assist devices, inotropes, and transplant as needed. Um, it's much harder to do that as they, if they go off, for example, overnight, and, and you know, myocarditis is reversible. So that's a one. Just with COVID, I just you think see that it could be something they touch upon, so especially less you see less with COVID myocarditis, but you certainly do see it like uh, influenza myocarditis. Mm. Uh, so that's for interest' sake, and I suppose good thing to be aware of, so it's very topical. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Actually, the whole point of being aware of these for the interview scenario is knowing that they're there to escalate to uh, and being aware that that is part of your thought
0: process and management plan. Um, well, no one's going to ask you how to use an impeller or how it works. That's far more than you shouldn't, you shouldn't need to know, but just knowing that LV assist devices do exist is, I think, completely understandable and impressive. Um, yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Um, I think any, anything more to add about No,
0: Just actually one more thing. I think, uh, you you did kind of go on about it earlier, but I just want to really hammer home the point. I think heart failure is one of the, one of the one of the um, conditions where you want the patient to take ownership, and it does really really need an MDT approach. So always always think: have I mentioned the MDT enough? Because it is the heart failure nurses, is the um, the the heart failure mdt the imaging team are so so important to how you manage someone's heart failure and the patient is the center so if the patient doesn't take ownership and is non-compliant with their meds you're never you can do as many fancy things you want but you'll never you'll never win so this is the one where you really really need to think about getting the patient involved and taking ownership over their condition early Uh, and if you haven't mentioned daily weights you've gone wrong (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah that you know your your answer should be littered with these buzzwords and it might make you laugh a bit after but um it's yeah. a sign you're going you're going in the right direction if you're saying all these things
0: yeah
1: yeah okay great uh so that brings an end to our knowledge video about chronic heart failure um thanks for listening Thanks you very much